Hello, David. Good afternoon, Sergey. Uh, thank you so much for coming for this uh, conversation. It's a great pleasure. David, uh, what role does the tax system play in relation to individuals and the state? And what is the most important part of this relationship? Well, tax has two critical elements. One is, as you say, it's, uh, it's the ultimate determinant of the relationship between an individual and a state. Uh, if the individual is entitled to keep the whole or most of the money he produces, then that will encourage one attitude towards productivity and work. If, on the other hand, the individual is entitled to keep none or very little of the uh, activity of the product of his activity, then that's going to very much reduce uh, his productivity. Uh, there used to be a saying in the former Soviet Union that uh, we, uh, they are pretending to pay us, so we pretend we are working. Um, if people are in fact being paid, if they are uh, able to enjoy the fruits of their labour, then they're far more likely to work hard and be productive. So it's, in that sense, it's a, it's a critical civil liberties issue. Uh, the other side of it, of course, is that in addition to the amount of tax governments take, uh, they can create a lot of complexity for doing business. This is what uh, economists call the compliance cost. And the compliance cost is really a waste of money because uh, it is not money that goes to the government so government can do something useful but it's money that comes out of the pocket of the taxpayer because they have to comply with the tax laws. So taxes, from a, from a taxpayer's perspective and a tax design perspective, the objective is first of all to set the rates at reasonable levels, but second uh, to ensure that the tax compliance costs don't become too great because that's the real waste. Direct and uh, indirect taxes, which model is better for developing countries and which one is better for developed countries? And how does it help to the economy? I think you get the same answer for both. If you think about it, income is a proxy for what people contribute to society. Uh, there's a general acceptance that the more you tax something, the less there'll be of it. And that's why many countries have high taxes on alcohol, cigarettes and the like. So governments know very well that imposing a tax on something will actually stop people from doing it, and, and that's why you have a lot of these taxes. Uh, on the other hand, consumption, in a sense, is a tax on what people take out of society. So if you think about it, it is far more logical to encourage people to produce uh, than it is to consume. Um, if they consume, uh, then that's taking things out of society, whereas if they don't consume, it goes into savings and that leads to productive reinvestment. So all over the world, uh, governments are moving increasingly to value-added tax models and indirect tax models. Uh, it's particularly relevant in the context of a developing country because it's actually easier to collect most indirect taxes than it is to collect uh, income taxes. Uh, so that it is a, uh, it's a, an efficient way of raising money, but also, it seems to me that if you have to choose between taxing production and taxing consumption, it is far more logical to tax consumption. Is there any difference in the principle of how this indirect tax is collected? Um, there are differences. Uh, for example, uh, the United States and Australia for a long time used to have what is effectively a retail sales tax. What I mean by that 
is it's a tax that's collected at the final point of sale, but there are not taxes on the stages of sale all the way through. Uh, that, uh, we used to have that, the United States, as I say, still does. Uh, Europe reached the value-added tax uh, concept in a slightly different route because they imposed taxes on every stage of production, you got what was called a cascading effect. Uh, if you had one uh, entity that was doing everything involved in making a motor car, because there were no transactions all the way through, uh, the, because everything was owned by the one entity, you had no taxing points in the middle, uh, only a tax at final stage. But if you had a production chain to produce the same car that involved four or five different manufacturers under the previous model in Europe because each manufacturer was charging a tax mm -hmm. and not giving a credit for the taxes that had been paid by a previous manufacturer, you ended up with a, a situation where tax, tax was being paid in respect of costs which included tax. So you had economic distortions. Uh, the model that, uh, as I say, seems to be now accepted across the world, with the exception of the United States, is the notion of the value-added tax because it, first of all, captures value as created, it is far more precise, and it also has the advantage from a government's point of view that you have these points of checking all the way through. If somebody in the process is evading tax, it is much easier to find it, to detect it and do something about it than if it's simply a retail sales tax. Globalization nowadays opens the borders for international transactions. Mm -hmm. um, what is the best uh, practice to manage double taxation in this case? Well, there are a series of ways in which you can do it, but let's start with the basic proposition. A tax is a, is a fiscal cost uh, for somebody who does something somewhere. And if you change who does it, or what is done, or where it's done, you're going to change the tax consequences. Uh, to pick a simple example, companies pay a normally pay a different rate of tax to individuals. So if the business is run by a company, you will pay one rate of tax. If it's run by an individual, you'll pay another. What globalization is doing, simply because it's so easy nowadays to move the factors of production around, is it is encouraging governments as far as possible uh, to see their tax system as a means of attracting investment and promoting development. That's particularly the case uh, in Eastern Europe where uh, for a long time you didn't have much in the way of a social safety net and now governments are trying to build their economies. Uh, there are complaints about that, of course, from time to time by the EU who would prefer everyone to have a higher tax rate. So one of the consequences of globalisation is tax competition. Uh, the other thing that's important uh, as a result of globalisation is you want to make sure that uh, people pay the right amount of tax, they pay it in the right country, and they pay it only once. Uh, let me give an example. Somebody who's living in England uh, owns a factory in Montenegro. Under Indi English tax law, uh, you pay tax on your profits wherever you earn them, anywhere in the world. Under Montenegrin tax law, anyone in Montenegro who carries on a business that makes a profit pays tax on the profit that arises mm -hmm. in Montenegro. So you have a situation where both England and Montenegro 
might make a claim to tax on the same profit. Uh, that's obviously going to disrupt international trade. Uh, that issue is dealt with by a series of international agreements called double taxation agreements. Uh, Montenegro has signed quite a lot of them and they effectively allocate the profits uh, between a country where the profit is made or what in tax terms is called the source country and the place at which uh, the ownership of the profits is uh, what in tax terms is called the country of residence. And how that is allocated really depends on um, what is done uh, and how it's done. For example, uh, the rule in relation to businesses is normally that you pay tax in the country of source if you have a per what's called a permanent establishment there, which is a, a substantial business of one sort or another. Uh, if you don't have a permanent establishment, there's no tax in the country of source. Tax is paid only in the country of residence. Uh, what is then provided is that if tax is paid in the country of source, the country of residence will give a credit for the tax that's paid. So that, um, for example, if you have a business in, uh, in Montenegro that pays tax at the standard uh, tax rate of 9%, uh, when you get to England, uh, where the tax rate is higher, uh, you will take off the 20% tax rate that applies in England, the 9% that's been paid in Montenegro, so that effectively you pay 11% in England. That's oversimplifying it, but the basic idea is that the profits should be taxed once, that the countries that have a claim to it should be able to, on a rational basis, work out who gets first bite at the cherry, if I might use that expression, and then the country of residence uh, takes the balance. Um, is investing offshore is a good or bad practice, and how does one prevent discrimination between domestic and uh, foreign taxpayers? Well, whether or not an investment is a good idea or not uh, depends on a lot of things, the most important one of which is what's going to make a profit. Uh, investment somewhere where you aren't going to make, uh, make any profits uh, is not a good idea, even if you aren't going to pay any tax. So the, the advice that I always give people is that you shouldn't allow the, what I call the tax tail to wag the business dog. You, you should really have to look at what is the most business effective strategy. Then you look at the tax implications and uh, increasingly uh, governments are saying we want to look at real structures and real activities. So having companies that are set up in jurisdictions where the company is little more than a post box uh, is becoming increasingly unfashionable. Governments looking for where the real activity is going on uh, and Im imposing tax. But Ultimately, uh, tax is a cost of doing business somewhere, so like any other cost, a responsible business owner uh, is looking for ways and means of keeping costs under control to maximise the profits, uh, so that one consequence of tax competition is that uh, if people are free to move and bring their capital with them, they will, graduate, they will move to countries which are otherwise uh, satisfactory um, and have low or sensible tax rates. Uh, I mean, Mont Montenegro is actually a classic example of this, and the place is beautiful. Uh, there's no reason why people would not want to live here. Um, if they live here, then they have the advantages of a, uh, a well-designed tax system that isn't oppressive in its demands. 
where I live is Dubai. Um, the tax rate is lower in Dubai, but a lot of people don't want to live in a desert uh, or, a, or something. If you're not in the desert, you're really in a large city. So you don't get the opportunity, for example, to have a, a rural lifestyle uh, in a, uh, on farms uh, in Dubai because there aren't any. So there are a whole series of uh, reasons why people are going to structure their lives and their businesses in particular ways. Uh, as I've said, it's not successful for either your life or your business to make decisions solely concerned with tax, but it is something that is sensibly taken into account. Given, given that most countries give you various choices uh, under their tax laws as to how you do things. Which countries currently have the best tax system for foreign investors? Well, I think you, the first thing I would say, as I said earlier, is you don't want the tax tail to wag the investment dog. Mm -hmm. uh, tax is only one of a number of factors that should be taken into account. Uh, the starting point is you've got to go somewhere where you can make yeah. a profit. Uh, having said that, I think there are a couple of things that you want to have in a tax system. Uh, one is that you need to have a tax system in the first place. Uh, one of the problems, if there is no tax at all, is that you often will be in a country that is not particularly well run, so that, for example, if you want to, have, if you want to employ uh, people to come and work for your factory, if there's not a decent school system, it's going to be very difficult to get uh, labour with the necessary skills. So that uh, you need to have a tax system which supports a government that is providing a stable environment in which you work. Uh, the second thing you want, as I said, is you want to have low compliance costs. Uh, compliance costs is money that's just wasted. Uh, it goes from the taxpayer, so it's an expense for him but it doesn't go to the government, it just goes to lawyers and accountants, I suppose you could say people like me. But, uh, but none of that uh, is a benefit to the wider community. So you want to have tax systems with low compliance costs uh, and you need to have transparent tax systems. Uh, one of the problems you find in, in some parts of the world is that the tax system uh, is used uh, as part of the machinery of government uh, to control people. Um, at times it's not well organised. There are some countries, sadly, in which there's a great deal of corruption in the tax system. So you need a, a tax system which is, is totally independent of government and which is totally transparent and non-corrupt. Once you've said those things, so efficiency, uh, transparency and honesty, the next question really is the rate. And there governments and countries make their own choices. Uh, Western Europe has gone essentially for a high tax model. Um, there are some people, and I'm one of them, who thinks that in the long term that's not sustainable, that uh, low tax models are very much better in terms of encouraging productivity and uh, social stability. Um, having said that, there are plenty of people who disagree with me, but that's, that's a matter of legitimate community choice. One of the consequences over time is if taxes become too high, that in turn produces uh, capital flight and, and people moving to lower tax jurisdictions. So you get a balance overall. But if you wanted to me to say, um, give an example of a country that has uh, a very attractive tax system, uh, sensible rates, uh, well administered actually, I, I think this is one of the best tax systems in the world in Montenegro. That's one of the things I find very attractive uh, about the country.
you're appointed as a Queen's Counsel. Yes. What does it mean for you? Well, uh, Queen's Counsel is, uh, I think, probably the best translation in Montenegrin would be Korolevsky Advocate. Uh, it's a uh, it's an honorific term, really. Uh, in the old days, it meant somebody who had to, as part of their practice of law, agree to advise the, the Crown and the government, and only, in fact, act against the government with the government's consent. Uh, but it's come more now to represent what is seen as being a level of seniority in, in that part of the legal profession that spend their time arguing cases in court. Because, because a lot of lawyers don't go to court very often, or indeed at all. Uh, in England, that's a formal process, so you have a, a group of lawyers who are called barristers, which is what I am, and another group of lawyers who are called solicitors, and, and the barristers are pretty much all the time in court, and solicitors, while they have the right to appear before a court, don't do it very often. And then within the, the, the group of barristers, if you become or seen as being senior, uh, then you get this title of Queen's Counsel. I, I've actually both met the Queen uh, and, uh, and acted for governments in Australia, but there are lots of Queen's Council who've done neither. Uh, why did you choose um, to be a lawyer as a profession? Well, when I was too young, everybody said, when I was young, everybody said I talked too much and uh, I argued too much. So it seemed logical to get a job where people paid me to do it. Um, but I, I mean, I love the intellectual engagement. It's uh, it's fascinating, and, and as you've seen from our earlier discussions, it, it's really at the interface of the relationship between citizens and government. So uh, it, it's of great interest in it from a civil liberties perspective and a and perspective of how society works, which is probably why you get so many lawyers in politics. They, they can't resist it. Uh, being a lawyer, do you see any mission in that? Um, I think, like any profession, uh, you have to realise that you have the fact that you can practise, um, particularly if you practise at a high level in the profession, uh, is a gift. Uh, you're very lucky to have it. Uh, in those circumstances, first, the first thing is you have to realise that you have a, an obligation to the profession that means you are doing more than just making money for yourself. Uh, most of us, I think, would say that uh, actually practicing your profession well benefits the society. I mean, in the case of barristers, for example, it means that anyone who wants to be represented in court will be able to be represented. Uh, we have a rule that's called the cab rank rule. Uh, it's not open to me if somebody comes along and wants me to act for them. Uh, if it's a field in which I practice, uh, I have to do it. I can't turn around and say, I don't like the look of it or I don't like the look of you, or uh, I think you may have committed the crime you're accused of, so I won't act. Uh, it's your job to make sure that they are properly represented in court and have the, uh, the best possible assistance to have their case put forward. It's for the judge to decide um, what the, the disposition of the case should be. Uh, your only job is to make sure that the uh, law is properly enforced, and that serves a community purpose, but you can go through all the great professions and uh, they achieve something more than making money for themselves. What would be your answer to people who, who say they don't want to pay taxes? Well, they should ask themselves what 
they would like to live in a society where the government provided no services. Uh, most people, I think, would say that they didn't like that idea. Um, or uh, the other point, not just pay no taxes, but pay the other pay f for the things that taxes would otherwise pay for in some other way, like have to pay for ha to have your children educated at school, or alternatively not have them educated. Uh, now there are there are certainly levels of choice uh, involved in that process. Uh, both in terms of do you pay taxes, indirect taxes or direct taxes? Uh, do you pay for government services by user pays charges as opposed to uh, taxes from general revenue? But uh, there's, a, there's a lot that people dispute about, can argue about in economics, but there's one proposition that no one really can question, and that is that no one gets it if there isn't any. So if there is no money coming into the government to provide government services, then there won't be any government services. And people have to ask, is that a good way to run a society? How the government collects its money is a different matter. As I say, there's direct taxes, there's indirect taxes, there's user-pays charges. Uh, there's, if, if you're in a country that's lucky enough to have huge natural resources, there are the proceeds of sale of the natural resources. But they run out eventually. So you, you have to build a sustainable society going forward uh, and that will usually involve some level of, of tax of one sort or another. You are awarded with the Order of the Rising Sun for your contribution to Australia and Japanese relations. What do you think made Japan different in doing business in comparison to other countries where you practice in law? The Japanese society is very much more consensus-based. So there is a tendency uh, for Japanese always to engage in a great deal of research before making decisions to take into account as many views as possible when making decisions and as far as possible make decisions that will have uh, general community acceptance. Uh, one of the, I mean, the strength of that process is that once the decision's made, uh, it usually has widespread community support. You don't have people arguing 12 months later that it shouldn't have been made, as for example you're having in Britain now about the, the decision to leave the European Union. Uh, the on the other hand, uh, it does mean that the Japanese don't make decisions quickly. Um, we live in a world in which decisions often need to be made quickly. And in that sense, uh, you know, the Japanese could be said now to be suffering from a disadvantage because of the way they do business. Uh, the other thing about the, the Japanese business when you're actually dealing with Japanese people is that uh, literal translations don't often work. Uh, I mean, Japanese hates using the word no. I mean, there's a word, the ear, uh, in the Japanese language which means no, but it's very difficult to get a Japanese to actually say it. Uh, similarly, uh, the Japanese word for yes, hi, uh, really uh, is more accurately translated as I hear what you say, uh, not I entirely agree with it. Uh, if a Japanese disagrees with it, and if you wanted to put together a proposal to get something approved by the government, for example, and the, the argument uh, is unlikely to succeed. Uh, in Australia, uh, if I was dealing with a client, I would probably say that's just hopeless, don't even waste your time. Whereas a, my Japanese counterpart would probably say something more like, we'll submit your proposal to the ministry where we're sure it will be respectfully considered. 
which also means no, it's hopeless. <laughs> but it would never <laughs> be put that way in Japan. Uh, it's just a different way of doing things. Uh, I think a friend of mine from Japan once said that what he uh, liked about Australia was what he called our capacity for improvisation, which I think was his very polite way of saying that by Japanese standards, we always did things very much at the last minute and without proper preparation. Uh, so it's just a different way of doing things. Um, and uh, you know, every country has its own uh, uh, peculiarities in this regard. Um, I'm going to ask you three short questions. Uh, you mean you want a short answer? <laughs> yes. What is the most important role of tax in tax profession? Uh, to ensure that, uh, well, sorry, uh, that we have a role as educator of the government, as educator of the public, and as educator of our clients. As educator of our clients, it's to get them to pay the correct amount of tax and to organise their affairs as efficiently as possible so they don't pay t taxes that the law doesn't require them to pay. So far as governments are concerned, it's, it's the other side to help them understand how to put together tax systems that are, to use the terms I used before, uh, efficient, simple uh, and clear, and subject to the rule of law. And from the point of view of the general public, it's to understand why a tax system is necessary, uh, generally the need for compliance and the need to get proper advice when required. Mm -hmm. If you could talk to one person from history, who would it be? Probably Catherine the Great of Russia. What is your motto? Uh, I think fiat justicia, uh, let there be justice. David, it was a big pleasure talking to you. Great pleasure talking to you, Sergei. Thank, Thank you so much. much. Thank you. Thank you.